Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the FHFA's new mandate to servicers, home equity finding its moment, and the new Rocket credit card. First, here's a word from our sponsor. I'm Diego Sanchez, Chief Operating Officer of HW Media, and I'm here today with Melinda Wilner, who is the Chief Operating Officer at United Wholesale Mortgage. Melinda, so good to chat with you today. Great to chat with you as well. Thanks for having me. So obviously the borrower needs to be front and center during the origination process. What other clients and partners should loan originators be thinking about, especially in a purchase market? Yeah, that's a great question. I think number one is the people involved in that actual transaction. It's their transaction too. The borrower's gonna remember part and parcel, you know, the entire thing, whether it's the what the realtor did, what it was that the loan officer did. So uh, I say, you know, most importantly, the realtors that they're working with, making sure that that's a smooth transaction, whether it's somebody that they've already done business with and they'll continue to do business with, or maybe in a really great scenario, they can wow, the other realtor who they don't do business with, and that's a future uh, source for them, or should anything happen with their referral partner as well. Um, But really, anybody who has access to people thinking about moving or doing anything with their mortgage is huge. Um, You know, financial planners have always been a great resource. Um, Divorce attorneys have always been a great great resource. And then, you know, the obvious ones like, you know, builders, I think um, a little bit harder for some people to conceptualize new builds and breaking into that community as well, but really important for loan officers to, to be looking at, at builders as well. And then again, you know, anything that really touches um, people in the community, anything that even remotely thinks of home buying. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Always great to have you on as we recap sort of what's been happening this week in the news in a, uh, over the all of our newsrooms. So let's start today with the FHFA and their decision to expand payment deferrals um, for borrowers facing hardships, which is, um, you know, completely affects servicers. Talk about that story a, a second. Yeah, this, this is actually a pretty big one. So uh, the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they're going to allow borrowers facing financial hardships of any stripe for the most part, uh, to defer payments of up to six months for mortgage. And uh, and the FHFA announced that on Wednesday. And so you probably remember that this used to be an option that was available to borrowers who fell behind on their mortgage payments because of the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, but now the GSEs are going to start to offer that to people who are experiencing other kinds of hardships, not necessarily, you know, related to COVID. And, um, and so by, by doing this, we're, we're, we're essentially seeing, uh, kind of a lessons learned from the government. And so, you know, we're, we're going to have borrowers that are making the same monthly payments, but they're just moving past to amounts to the end of the loan. And, and we saw the FHE do this. We've, we've seen, um, you know, kind of a lot of changes to how, uh, you know, the, the government thinks about, uh, how to keep people in their homes after facing, you know, financial challenges. And, and so this is a major step forward. And, and really, I, I think it, it, it is basically a, this is what we've taken away from COVID. And, and remember in the beginning, you know, how scared people were and, and, and just, 
you know, that the mania around this idea that there are going to be mass foreclosures in the country and say like what March, April, 2020, remember, you know, there was no liquidity in the mortgage market and, and everything was a disaster and, you know, a huge amount of the population couldn't work. And so this is one of the, the, the key things that the government did and, and it was hugely effective. I mean, I believe the FHFA estimated that, you know, Fannie and Freddie completed about a million COVID-19 payment deferrals during the pandemic. And, and it's not like, you know, life stops once the pandemic uh, is, is more or less addressed. Um, you know, borrowers, especially as a recession approaches, uh, are, are facing all kinds of different hardships. And so I, I think this is a really smart move and, and the mortgage trade groups were, were really happy about it. And I know the servicers uh, are, are pretty happy about it as well because it provides you know, a sense of finality. It's, it's so much easier to plan, uh, your, your strategy when you know exactly what the rules are, uh, and, and, um, you know, how things are going to wash. So, uh, in terms of the policy, you know, the enhanced payment deferral has a voluntary adoption date of July 1st. Um, so it gives the servicers a, a few months to, to kind of, you know, get their bearings and, and plan out their responses. Uh, but the mandatory date by which they have to be compliant is October 1st. So, um, and, and you also might remember that, uh, basically the same thing happened in January with the FHA, which announced that servicers will have, you know, the, the COVID-19 loss mitigation option available for any borrower who fell behind on mortgage payments, um, regardless of the hardship, you know, it, it didn't have to be COVID related. So, you know, this is a huge government push and, um, and, and I think it's a really good one and, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how it develops over the next year or so. But uh, I think there's a good chance that uh, services aren't going to miss a beat and, and they'll be able to implement this pretty quickly because, you know, they've done it before. I think those are great points. The fact that they did such a good job in COVID and, you know, have been lauded even by the regulators who said, hey, you really stepped up and did this in a much tighter time frame. Uh, under much more trying circumstances, I feel like, you know, this is not going to be hard for them. And then also, you know, one of the lessons from the great financial crisis is that, you know, a bunch of people in foreclosure has all these knock-on effects, but also it's really hard for the for the banks that owns those. Nobody, I mean, that's not like the the ideal outcome for anyone. I know that like consumers might feel like, oh, the banks want to take your house. The banks do not want to take your house. No. No, it's a huge hassle. It's hugely expensive, you know, and, and depending on, on which state you're in and, and the laws of that state, you know, it's it's a it, it can take many years uh, before a foreclosure case winds its way through the courts and the bank actually takes possession of the house and like who knows what the condition is at that point. There are, might be squatters living in there. You know, it, it might be full of all kinds of other problems, irrespective of the borrower's financial situation at that point, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's in pretty much everybody's best interest if they can. You know, there are always going to be some circumstances in which a borrower just cannot make the payment, regardless of what the payment is. It could be $500. It could be $1,000. You know, there are Unfortunately, in America, all kinds of scenarios in which someone is infirm or just incapable of making that payment. You know, we, we don't have uh, the most robust social safety net here. Um, and so that does happen. But I, I think by and large, as policymaking goes, this is a case where the government really did get it right. Um, and, and this is a continuation of those policies. So it's, it's a good thing to see, you know, a lot of the affordable housing advocate groups have been cheering this move. And, um, you know, it's, it's not often that pretty much all of the housing industry and advocate sides are applauding the government 
for making a good decision. And, and, and this is one of those cases. So I, I think, you know, it's good for all parties and, and especially the servicers, you know, the bank does not want to go through this process and like reselling it. They also have to get the value right, or they have to go through auction. It's, it's a hugely laborious, really challenging, painful process for all parties if you don't have to do it, why do it? Well, and I think about, you know, um, we have a, one of our staff members, um, uh, Mike Simonson at Altos. He owns a house in Tahoe and he's been posting on social, like the pictures of his house in Tahoe with like five feet of snow on top of the roof that he clears off only just to get another four feet of snow on top of the roof. And this is one of the things about having a vacant house is the property preservation part of it is, is very, uh, tricky. And getting that right is really hard, but especially like in this kind of time frame when you think about spring, I'm in I'm in Texas, so you know, we're in our tornado season. And I just yeah, nobody wants that. It's it's much better to keep people in their houses. I think the only thing that um I was surprised at here is they didn't really list out what sort of hardships qualified. Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the FHA um, had kind of a blanket rule, you know, like any kind of hardship, whether it's COVID related, whether it's something else um, qualifies. Um, but but I, I didn't see it in the release, you know, but we'll have to follow up with the FHFA and see if they can break out. They said that there would be 11 hardships, um, you know, but but I didn't see a specific description. So we'll need to get more information from them on that. To your point, though, like even in COVID when we, you know, there were people who worried and, you know, I mean, I don't think it's an unreasonable worry to be like, are people just going to take advantage of this and, you know, uh, really harm the system uh, by taking advantage of it? But I mean, it's not an easy process to go through loss mitigation, even if that means you your your payments are different or whatever. So, I mean, we did not see that. We did not see just a whole bunch of fraudsters do that. We did see people who proactively were like, hey, I, I think I need this. And then they didn't end up needing it. Uh, but, you know, it, it isn't like this is some really fun thing to do for people. And we're just going to see an avalanche of people who for a whole lot of, you know, stupid reasons, you know, are looking for loss mitigation. Yeah. And in some, you know, in some cases, I, I believe Wells Fargo got got slapped for putting people into the the, the loss mitigation uh, kind of waterfall without their consent. Um, you know, and so there there were definitely some some instances in which you know people, according to the government, really didn't didn't quite get treated uh, the way they should have. But I think by and large, you know, the industry responded really well, and the borrowers, you know, which is a little bit different from kind of the, the landlord. Uh, tenant relationship that we we often hear a lot about, um, especially on the multifamily side, where you know tenants would just not pay and and go through the foreclosure process. Or, I'm sorry, um, not foreclosure, the eviction process. Um, you know, is is a lot different than the foreclosure process, and and um, you know that that's been a lot more, I think, complicated. But for home ownership, you know, the vast majority of people who are primary, you know, owner occupants. Um, wanted to make the payments, are not looking to get, you know, any kind of, um, you know, special deal or anything like that. They they just, they're in tough times. They don't have a lot of options, right? And if you can just tack on those payments at the end of the loan instead of, you know, at the beginning, it gives them time to find a job. It gives them time to, you know, find a, another source of, of money to make those payments and start getting back on their feet. And, you know, I, I think that's been a big help and it's just, it's just been good policy. 
It is a good policy. Okay, well, let's let's talk now about home equity. So we know that home equity products right now are very, very popular. We had a story this week, home equity niche will benefit from a private label lift. Walk us through that story. Yeah, so the, the demand for home equity loans, especially HELOCs uh, and, and sort of these shared equity investment products that are kind of getting more popular um, in, in recent years, they're, they're now stronger than at any time since the global financial crisis about 15 years ago. Uh, and, and as Bill Conroy, our senior mortgage reporter, details, the securitization channels for these products are not quite catching up to the demand. Um, but but still, you know, just the, the amount of tappable equity that homeowners at large have in their properties is absolutely massive. I know it's gone down a little bit because, you know, home values have dropped a little bit since the heights of of kind of 2021, 2022, but nationally, we're talking about more than $10 trillion in tappable equity. And, and so we're also facing a potential recession, right? And people do not want to necessarily sell and then take on a mortgage at 7%. You know, many are now opting to renovate the home or, you know, create conditions at their house that, that make them more likely to stay for longer, get more value out of it, or, you know, use it to pay down debt, you know, credit cards, maybe you have student loans, maybe you have, you know, medical debt, which, you know, it does, does happen in this country. And, um, and, you know, that's, that's for a lot of people, the, the only asset that they really have. And almost everybody has seen an increase in their equity over the last few years. Um, and some like considerably, I mean, if you bought a house in Austin, Texas and, you know, 2010, and you just have a kind of a standard 30 year mortgage on it, and you look at your equity now, having done nothing to it, I mean, hell, you've probably paid off that loan by now, just in equity at this stage, right? Like, and there are so many markets like that in America, you know, we, we've just seen an explosion in equity for for the last 15 years, right? And, um, you know, in, in terms of being able to tap kind of that marketplace, um, when we talk about the mortgage banking industry, it is still very much a game of credit unions and traditional depository banks. You know, non-banks can't really hold loans on their balance sheets, right? You know, so they need to find securitization channels and partners really to do it. And that's, that's a tough, that's a tough, um, you know, business to crack. Uh, it, it does happen. You know, we've seen some securitizations that have loans from Rocket and from Spring EQ and, and some others, but um, it is still very much, you know, the business of uh, kind of the, the traditional players that have been in there. But we also see uh, new entrants, you know, doing what we call these, you know, shared equity investment products. And that's been really interesting. Um, you know, you get, let's say you're the homeowner, you put a little money in, you you want to take some money out and you can do so. And then you have to repay, you know, the kind of the investment partner once you sell the house, right. Or over a specified period of time, let's say it's 10 years. And so again, just another model where you can kind of tap some equity um, and, and really, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you put that in the stock market, maybe whatever, it doesn't matter, but you know, it's, it's a product that has a lot of appeal right now because the rest of the mortgage market is still um, just just not really a viable product for a lot of people right now, unless you really have to. And so um, we're seeing a lot more business here, and and I think it's going to continue to be a pretty good, reliable product for for those 
you know, kind of aforementioned companies and, and, and types of companies over the next few years. Really interesting. I'm, I know that, that uh, in, within that story, we quoted um, data from Adam, uh, which said that HELOCs represented 20%, 20.7% of all the fourth quarter 22, 2022 loans. So that's, that's a lot, right? I mean, that, and, and to your point, it's because, you know, we're in a pretty tough market where there's just not a lot of inventory either. So um, just from the the standpoint of the volume of loans, the HELOCs are going to rise uh, because there's just not that much inventory being sold back and forth. But um, I know that the the banking crisis that we saw start with SVB and going on, I mean, that has a that has an effect on the capital that's available here. What what are we seeing? Yeah, yeah. So you know, in, in terms of the the traditional home equity loans, like you said, you know, I, I believe it was sixty billion. Uh, in HELOCs in the fourth quarter of 2022. And that's, that's a huge number, you know, the highest we've seen in, in quite some time. And um, what, what's interesting is, is, you know, we're, we're also seeing from the non-banks, we're seeing HELOCs, we're seeing, uh, you know, closed and second lien home equity mortgage products, which um, are kind of those IMBs that we didn't traditionally see. And so, you know, that's, that's one way for them to, to kind of build out, uh, you know, a viable, equity product that they haven't really had access to in the past. And, and so that's been good, you know, in, in terms of overall liquidity in the system, it's tough for a lot of these independent mortgage banks. And so they're starting to turn, you know, to other, other options. They're trying to diversify their product mix a little bit. You know, the big banks that have been in this space for a long time, they're fine. You know, no, nobody's worried about like PNC bank, going under. Nobody's worried about JP Morgan Chase having a problem. Bank of America has been big in this space for quite quite a few years as well. And and credit unions, generally speaking, are, are pretty secure because of their model, right? And so so that's that's not really the issue. The the issue for the IMBs has just been, I mean, what was the statistic? Like the the average one lost twenty eight hundred per loan in in the fourth quarter, which means, you know, think about how many were below average and, and couldn't make ends meet they're not able right now to just pivot to HELOC and just say, you know, aha, like here's the money spigot and I can turn that on and, and suddenly I'm okay. I mean, you have, you have to put a lot of work into this. You have to develop a team that can monetize, you know, HELOCs and equity. Um, it's it's a pretty complicated, fairly low margin business. Most IMBs don't do it because it's not very profitable, you know, on, on a kind of parade basis. And um you know, I, I, I just, I, I don't really see that dynamic changing all that much. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see what happens over the next year, but, but it's, it's a lot of other kinds of players, um, that are, that are getting into the space that are a little bit more kind of like tech investment, private equity focus. We're seeing some REITs in there. So, you know, like point, I don't, I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, Redwood trust is pretty active in, in the HELOC sector or shared equity contracts. Um, you know, and, and it's it's going to be a growing space just because there's so much money and people are going to figure out a way to tap it, right? Like nobody thought they could do a twist. I, I know they, they will disagree with my characterization of it, but nobody thought they could do a twist on the timeshare, you know, uh, but Silicon Valley figured out a way to do that and, and kind of make that profitable because there's still money to be made there, right? Like there's just a lot of money in equity. There's a lot of money uh, in general that, that isn't moving all that much. And, and it's just a few kind of entrenched players. So if you think that you're, you know, a REIT that, that can find the angle that can kind of work on some of the shared equity splits, 
yeah, now's the time to get in there, right? So um, I, I think it's one of the more exciting spaces in in mortgage and in the housing industry right now. And it's also, I think there is the potential for there to be a lot of, uh, <laughs> could be a lot of conflicts between equity holders and and some of these investment companies. You know, private equity traditionally is not a very sentimental, uh, <laughs> you know, negotiation, uh, you know, heavy kind of uh, business. So it's... Um, you know, there, there could be some conflicts down the road. I think that's an excellent point. Um, some of the non-banks that are that are really into the space are, you know, Rocket, Guaranteed Rate, United Wholesale Mortgage, Homebridge, Movement Mortgage, Loan Depot. So, I mean, we do have some of those big players. But, you know, to your point, we also have um, some other people coming alongside them. And so, you know, Figure, I think you uh, you talked about Spring EQ, yep. Figure. Um, they're, they're a very interesting um, company, you know, founded by... Mike Cagney, who's, you know, a veteran of this space. Yeah, you know, and, and they, they've done a lot of jumbos and they're very interested in HELOCs and they're kind of complementary products, right? Like, you know, they're looking for very specific types of buyers and borrowers and and um, and that, and that's a good niche for them. And so, you know, despite, you know, how, how much, uh, you know, origination volume there was in the fourth quarter, this is still kind of a niche ball game just because the barrier to entry is fairly high, you know, and figure has been kind of involved in this for a few years now, even before, um, you know, interest rates really skyrocketed over the last year. Um, they they were betting, uh, you know, quite a bit on, on HELOCs being a, a long-term business strategy. And, and so it's no surprise that they're going to stick with it. And, and I would expect this to be um, really not not a place where the IMBs are, are going to gain a huge amount of market share, but where they, they want to at least, you know, explore the potential of HELOCs and, and other kinds of equity models. It's, it's important to in this market to look around. And that's really the next story I wanted to talk about was Rocket launching uh, its first credit card to attract buyers and homeowners. And it's really part of their effort to bring consumers into their mortgage ecosystem in other ways. And I, th- I think this is really smart. I'm not aware of another company that does, does it like this. Are you? Uh, not in this space. There are kind of other spaces in which we start to see these sort of like points-based cards in housing. So there's a company, I don't remember the name of it exactly offhand, but but they're working with a lot of the big multifamily developers like Related and and those groups where they're, they're basically saying like, hey, like you can basically pay your rent with this points card, you know, and, and then you can use that, you know, as part of kind of the larger ecosystem and you can, you can build up, um, you know, value through that. And, and, but this is the only one that I'm aware of in, in kind of the direct originations, you know, mortgage origination space, um, you know, and, and for Rocket, this, this is part of their larger strategy and it's all about the funnel, right? Like they're, they're obsessed with the funnel and rocket has been very clear that they're not thinking, you know, quarter to quarter. They're not even thinking cycle to cycle. They're thinking, you know, years down the road and how do we address where we are as a marketplace competitor vulnerable. And, and to be frank, it's in purchase originations. They're, excellent at refis. Their call center model was kind of the wonder of the mortgage world when they were, you know, printing money uh, during the refi boom in 2020 and 2021. And and they were able to bank like, you know, literally billions in cash. And so unfortunately they they've never because of their model been that close to the purchase action. So they have to figure out a way to get people into their ecosystem and the, 
the way that they approach refis works because the call to action is pretty simple. Your rate is this on the TV commercial, you know, I can get you this. And, and it's, it's a simple proposition. Like, you know, you look at the app, you go through your phone, you maybe call them up and then suddenly you have a refi and it's, it's, you don't have to go through the process of getting a mortgage broker or going to a, you know, a bricks and mortar retail location and all that. But it's a totally different ballgame when you're trying to get purchase business. People still want to talk to a human and feel like there's someone guiding them through the process. And, and then that means that it comes through referral business, right? It comes through agents or it comes through past, you know, interactions with that client. Maybe they got a new home, maybe they're refining, you know, and then going to sell in two years and you check in, right? And so, so Rocket has absolutely nailed the refi game. When are we going to see another big refi boom? When are we going to see people, how many people have rates under 4%? How many people are going to be incentivized to refi in the next, like, you know, I'm not a fortune teller, but I'd say very few are going to have a big incentive to refi, you know, in the next three years. And so even the rocket has a ton of money and is, is, you know, a, a bigger moat than almost everybody in the mortgage space. They're not invulnerable, you know, like, you know, AOL used to send me the discs, you know, with the internet on them and like, how long did that last? Right. You know, so, so they, they have to be smart and this is a way of getting people into that funnel. And so in terms of the specifics of the card, let's say you get a card, you get a credit card from rocket, you know, and, and, um, and, and in doing so, if you're looking to buy a home, you can earn 5% back using the rocket. It's a visa signature card for up to $8,000 that can be used toward closing costs and down payments. And homeowners who are making monthly payments to Rocket Mortgage could also use their their card points and they'll receive 2% of their card spending toward the UPB, the the unpaid principal balance. So if you're a new card holder and you spend $3,000 in the first 90 days being approved, you'll earn a $200 statement credit. And then the firm is also going to waive the the $95 annual fee for card holders who are also um, clients because they have a mortgage with Rocket. So it's something, you know, and, and I, I think the argument would be a lot of these prospective buyers would be using that credit card anyway to pay for home improvements, or maybe you need to buy a new oven, or maybe you need to do this or that or whatever. And so it's almost like from their perspective, like found money, you know, um, I still wonder about the idea of taking on additional debt after, you know, buying a house and, and you know, all the, the conversations we have about the FHFA and the DTI components, right? And, and, um, and, and just you know, the position of debt, uh, for consumers in America, I I think is always kind of a perilous one. You know, how many people really have the savings? I I don't know that it's globally a great thing to be encouraging people to take on more debt beyond a mortgage that they're already probably paying, you know, quite a bit for because rates are what they are. Um, but, but definitely this is a long-term play and rocket, um, has to, has to get people in that funnel and, and this is a way to do it. I think it's so smart because it's integrated with Rocket Money. So that's their personal finance app. Yeah. And Truebill, formerly. Yes, formerly Truebill. And to me, what they're doing here, there have been a lot of mortgage companies that are like, how do we how do we stay in touch with the consumer outside of just this one-time transaction? How do we create that relationship? And they've really focused on the homeownership journey, which makes sense. It's like, oh, you know, so um, sure. all these things. But this is kind of coming at it from a different point of view and like you're you're a consumer first and one of the things you do is a house but let's talk about all the other things and i think that's really smart because i'm not sure we've seen a huge uptick on those other programs where they've tried to connect with cons- uh, homeowners as homeowners whereas this is like goes straight to you like the fact that um 
you know, rocket money, it, it's like that, that true bill. So it identifies recurring expenses, especially um, it, it can cancel subscriptions. These are very of the moment things that people, you're identifying a need, right? We all have probably more subscriptions than we need or even realize we have. And they, they automatically renew it. It ticks me off so much when I see that. And I'm like, oh. Getting rid of Netflix. Yeah. Exactly. And so I feel like in, in other cases where people have like, let's, let's expand the home ownership and our, and our, um, or homeowners, let's expand that relationship based on their home. This is really expanding the relationship based on everything else they do. And it is tied to the home, but I think it's, I, I think it's really smart. Yeah. I, the, the analysts who cover the company also were encouraged by, by the move. And, and they, they, you know, Rocket talked about this on their most recent earnings call, but at, at Keith Bree at Woods, KBW, for those who, who, who don't uh, use the industry parlance, uh, they, they think that this is also going to provide Rocket, you know, with what they call interchange, which is swipe fees or interest income. So it's, it's another revenue stream for them. It's probably not going to do much in the immediate term. But if we talk about the cost of acquiring a borrower, which is in the industry so bloody high, right? I mean, it takes thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars um, to get a borrower and, and to go through that whole process. Um, how much cheaper, you know, maybe Rocket could do it for a few hundred bucks, right? That could be big savings. Maybe then that means they can offer way lower rates and that changes the whole game because right now the problem is the cost to get a borrower is really high. And then, of course, there are the compliance and regulatory, you know, fees that 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 also kind of betray that. But I mean, this could be a game changer in the aggregate. You know, I don't think the credit card alone is going to solve Rocket's purchase problems, but it could absolutely open the door. And, and if you build on it and and they get a little bit better at a few other things, suddenly, you know, we, we maybe two years from now, we're talking about Rocket right being back where they used to be, right? At number one and and dominating the purchase market too. It's It's very, very possible. Also, I think about all of the information, the data they're gaining every time you swipe that credit card. I mean, yep, that's that true. To me, is is just right there. Okay, so you're you're a homeowner with us, and now we know what you're spending money on, where you spend it, um, what percent you spend. I mean, of course, that may not be your only credit card, but I just think the insights they're getting, the data they're gaining, win win all the way around. And how to identify, you know, other borrower profiles, right? And so I remember there there was a story about. God, I, I think it was like somebody at Ford or one of the automakers, and they had done a ton of market research into people who bought a certain type of beef jerky because they almost always also bought a pickup truck, and so they would market, <laughs> you know, kind of toward toward the, the jerky eaters, you know. And and I think you could absolutely see a scenario like this because we're we're getting a lot more sophisticated with the personalization. It's not just cookies on my computer, right? It's not just somebody, you know, or or not somebody, but but uh you know, an algorithm looking at my tabs, my 75 tabs right now. Um, but it's, it's really kind of piecing together profiles of, of people. And, you know, maybe the algorithm already knows that I'm looking to sell my house right now. And um, it's, it's, it's such a brave new world in terms of big data and rocket has as much data as anybody, you know, they do their own servicing as well. They are a, a very well-oiled machine. They, they've invested a lot of money in, in sort of the technology and what they call a data lake. You know, they, they, if they can really monetize that for purchase, they could be in a great position for the long term. Well, of course, you know, like this is the advantage that the big banks had 
um, with their mortgage customers all the way along, yeah. right? Like you have your, uh, we know exactly what you're spending. You your small business loan there. You got your car yep. loan. You got, we, yeah, and we know you what you spend your money on, but for an IMB to get that sort of um, foothold in there, that that's really different. So, well, James, we have run out of time once again. It always goes so fast when I'm talking to you. Thank you so much for getting on and thanks for the great coverage. Cool. Thanks, Sarah. Calling all mortgage title and insurance leaders. With interest rates shutting down your refinance business, your relationship with your real estate partners is more important than ever. HW Media wants to help you deepen relationships and find success in this competitive purchase market by inviting you to attend Gathering of Eagles. Real Trends Gathering of Eagles is the real estate industry's premier event, bringing together leaders from the most successful brokerages in the country. For the first time ever, this closed event is open to our full audience. Check out the show notes to find out more or head over to realtrends.com to purchase your ticket today. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.